0: The scripture reading for today is 2 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, and we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice." Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. The word of the Lord.
1: Praise be to God. Morning. Welcome to the painted door. Welcome to winter. Some moans and groans. My son loves it. He uh, he has this like half-sized shovel, and he he goes out. He says, "I'm going to go help the neighbors," which means he's going to go six houses down to the house that like hasn't shoveled their. Their uh, their sidewalk, and he's just making piles. You know, I just wonder what they think of him out there. But he'll stay out there all day. I I'm still new enough to to like the winters, but uh, I'm sure I'll get over that. Um, so um, as I said, I'm Kirk. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to be preaching today, and um, we are uh, we have been uh, for. I guess eight weeks now this is the eighth in a series that we're preaching through uh, second Corinthians and um, the series is uh, called of crowns and thorns because of uh, what 2 Corinthians has to say about authority and about suffering and today it's going to be helpful to, to review um, a little bit of the context what uh, why was Paul writing this letter in the first place uh and uh what what the circumstances were he um, he was writing because the church in corinth was uh was uh hearing teaching from teachers who were undermining um paul 's authority. they were preaching in a style that was very stylized and formal and considered very eloquent it was difficult to do and um and they were well they were there with the Corinthians, and uh, there began to just be this attitude among them, I think, or they were conveying directly in teaching maybe that um, that Paul's ministry was not legitimate because he was gone and off suffering somewhere. He didn't have this style, this eloquent style of preaching, and... and uh, so the Corinthians began to began to believe this, at least listen to this. And so Paul's writing to just reaffirm his love for them, his fatherly care for, for them. And um, in that he's reasserting, uh, he's confirming his authority to preach the gospel to, to them. And in fact, he points to his suffering and the, the persecutions he's enduring in the name of the gospel as as the as the basis of his authority Now at many points in, in the letter Paul refers to a specific event uh, where Paul in chapter one it says that he's caused them pain and anguish and this happened uh, in a past letter that he wrote it wasn't first Corinthians there's another interim letter between first and second Corinthians, Uh, Where it seems we don't have that letter but it seems that there was a person in the church in Corinth that either had committed some offense against Paul or he was being divisive or had some bad teaching and so Paul wrote this letter of hard words a firm rebuke for the Corinthians and so that's going to Excuse me. That's going to come in a lot to our teaching today, and um, that's a little background on that. Of course, he's also writing the Bible, (laughs) so the uh, you know he he is impassioned to preach the gospel to them, to remind them, and to reinforce what they already know. And so, in this passage that we're going to go through today, is he's he's using this this awkward situation this painful situation to to do that so let's let's start in on with verse two Um, and we'll uh we'll go quickly with some commentary through a few of these verses and camp in the middle here for a while but in verse two uh, it says make room in your hearts for us we have wronged no one we have corrupted no one we've taken advantage of no one and this this verse is continuing the widen your hearts appeal from the past uh, chapter from chapter 6 and he's he says there he's speaking them to them like a father to children he has this is like a this is an entreaty that a father would give to his kids just listen to me be be on my side trust me Um, open your hearts open your hearts to us and um, and then he also mentions we've corrupted no one you know, we, have, we, we basically don't deserve this erosion of trust that's happened it's not, There has not been a, an issue of, of qualification where we've done someone wrong Maybe implying some of the other teachers had Or that there was maybe some other qualification issues to be thought about But not for them Now, in uh, verse 3, let's keep going. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. In other words, uh, I don't resent this. I just love you. You can hear the commitment that he has to the church in Corinth, to die together and to live together. He uh, they're a part of Him. He loves them. He suffers with their suffering. I'm acting with great boldness t- toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. So even in even with all this affliction, which I, I think it's being spread that it actually is supposed to be reflecting badly on him. In the midst of this affliction, he's actually overjoyed. He's not desperate to regain their trust. He's actually, he's actually confident. He knows them. That's why he's being bold. I have pride in you. I know, I know who you are. We belong to each other. And so then he goes into a, a brief backstory, you know. Verse 5 For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning. Your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So, so in this journey that, they're, that Paul's on, they're coming counterclockwise around the Adriatic Sea in the, in the Asia that he's, that he's referring to as the eastern coast of the Adriatic, which is modern-day Turkey. And um, he wrote in chapter 1 that when they were in Asia, they were despairing of life itself. Things were bad. They thought they would received the death sentence. And um, they were expecting to meet Titus there, but he didn't show or something, and so they continued on without him um, into Macedonia, which is the north coast of the Adriatic. And it was more of the same. Our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within, until they finally encountered Titus. And that was when, actually, they... They, well, they love Titus. He's their brother, and they were encouraged by him. But they also heard, this was the first time they heard about the Corinthians' reaction to this letter that maybe Titus had delivered, I don't know. He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So, so they took it to heart. They took that letter heart and their response, how they responded to that rebuke, gives Paul confidence now as he's appealing to them to open, open their hearts. Uh, in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, I have to admit that this, this, these two verses in particular uh, bothered me. They bothered me. And I think just the idiosyncrasies of my own um, story—they kind of give me this bias to see um, authority figures with this skepticism and cynicism, and um, and uh, this cynicism hears these verses like this: that hears, even though you got your feelings hurt, I was totally justified in being a jerk because otherwise you never would have gotten it together. I, you know, I'm making, nar- making uh, Paul into this narcissistic bully. I, I don't really think he was. I, I can't prove that he wasn't. Actually, I mean, you know, he's a... <laughs> <laughs> he was a man of action. I don't, I don't know many people of action that don't at least struggle with using people. But for the time being, we'll you know give him the benefit of the doubt. He 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 was the most explicit about who we are in Christ and what we have in Him. Um, so this next verse, verse ten, um, is uh, is the best known in in the chapter, and uh, I really think it. The whole chapter revolves around this around this verse. We're going to spend some time in this, and this you'll recognize it. I think for for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is just I mean it's a dense statement, significant one. What stands out first to me is this uh, salvation without regret. Now. I think regret is that pang that you have when you think of what could have been. If only, blank, ah, you ache for the alternate reality. And that, I mean, it's just, that is integrated so tightly with our human condition. I mean, we... Everything that happens could have been better. And it happens on a daily basis. There's just minor things that happen every day. You know, parking tickets. (laughs) No there's a hundred things every every day a lot of things we forget about but a lot of times it, very commonly these things they linger the regrets linger they haunt us they eat at us from the inside for the corinthians in this situation maybe this would have been just wishing that they had never they hadn't let it get so far you know with this guy whatever it was Or maybe they're just living in the shadow of fear of what Paul thinks about them. There certainly are hundreds of examples from real life. I knew an athlete that uh, had an early injury that ruined his NFL prospects. And he, he was just a regular guy instead of an NFL player. I knew a mother whose baby died in the crib, and she was uh, always wondering if it was her fault. Uh, I knew an aging single woman who was longing for a husband, but then in her once-in-a-lifetime one-night stand gets pregnant. I knew a man who who broke his uh, friend's trust when... He was having a demeaning conversation about the guy on the phone. But he didn't even mean those things. He was just pandering. Anyway, a, a student that went on the job market only to realize that she just went $80,000 in debt to buy a piece of paper that has no value whatsoever. For my part, I, uh, you know, got a string of them. I, a, lot, a lot of mine are related to this propensity that I have to withdraw from people out of uh, fear and laziness. My uh, uh, my father died about 13 years ago, and uh, I, growing up, I was scared of him. I loved him too but I was scared. He wasn't violent or anything, but he was just distant and really smart. And uh, while I was growing up, he just had a lot of concern. Uh, My parents were divorced, so when I'd visit him, he'd just be really concerned about my involvement in church. And uh, he was an academic, and so he would try to argue me out of Christianity. And, of course, you know, I'm a kid, so all I feel in those moments is just shame, and I feel criticized, and I don't know why, and I can't be good enough. And uh, my defense in those situations was just to clam up, just to just weather it, you know, not say anything, what, what could I say? Um, I just wouldn't respond, you know, until they blew over. And then much later in life, I mean, too late, I, uh, I came to see that those, those conversations that I hated so much, that was my dad loving me, caring about the outcome in my life. And um, those were my chances to engage with him, to listen to him, but also to ask more of him. So I, was, I mean, I was a kid, and we all were just kids. It's understandable, um, but that was that that behavior, that pattern, lasted through our our whole lifelong relationship, and it and it comes into play in all relationships at all levels. Uh, for me, and uh, I look back and I imagine like the redeemed versions of those. Uh, that we would have if he was still living. And it, you've all got your stories, of course, I know. Um, so this so this salvation without regret thing sounds pretty good. <laughs> it sounds pretty good. Uh, but it also sounds really dangerous to me. I think even that, that like, caricature that I have uh, lingering in there of, of Paul uh, you know, is really rooted on this type of person that just doesn't care. He doesn't care if he tramples or he uses. He has no regrets. He has no regrets. It's the having no regrets that's so bothersome. So even though life without regret sounds free and wonderful on the one hand, and it's even like a mantra in our world, no regret, right? I mean, people, it's a virtue, kind of, except in real life. When we encounter real people like that, it's, it's despicable. We actually approve of regret because it's just so dang useful. We, we, we use it to, to control our behavior. We make vows to ourselves, never again. Maybe so much so that it seems immoral to not have regrets. Or even inconceivable how you... Why would you do anything right or good unless regret, the threat of it, was there. So suffice to say, I think we have a love-hate relationship with, <laughs> with regret. It's loathsome on the one side, but it's irresistible and seems necessary on the other side. Now, I don't really think that Paul was a narcissistic bully, um, one thing that um, that I read in this text that uh, tells me that is that he actually does start out regretting back up in uh, verses 8 and 9 for even if I made you grieve with my letter I don't regret it though I did regret it for I see that that letter grieved you though only for a little while so I I did regret it. I didn't I didn't want to hurt you. When I heard that how you responded to it, it made me ache. But then he goes from regretting to not regretting. And how how does he do that? Oh, one thing I just wanted to point out with that is regretting is normal. All right. Every day, all those daily things that happen, we feel disappointment. Don't leave here thinking, "Oh no, I can't do anything." Regretting is normal; it's what it grows into, right? Um, but in this case, he gets he gets out of this regret. And how is it? I think it's useful to look at what happens. Oh, where did he get from not regret to? I'm sorry. It was from regret to not regret? Um, let me remind myself as it is I rejoice not because you were grieved but because you were grieved into repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us you suffered no loss I saw that the outcome was good you repented in fact you didn't you didn't suffer any loss, you actually benefited. And that makes sense. I mean, the whole point of regretting is hoping for something better, right? So if it really turns out that it was all for the best, then NBD. You know, if, you, if, you broke, if breaking the window on the mansion is what actually made you figure out that you have a great aunt that, you know, leaves you a huge fortune, then who cares about the window? just pales in comparison to it turned from a a fart into a flower I just made that up I shouldn't have said that (laughs) Uh, but you know what I I think this might actually be the only way out of regret well I mean I guess you could medicate, I mean you could medicate dull the pain but that's not really freedom from regret is it I mean you're actually building your life around regret and just trying not to feel it This despair I mean, actually, you could also blame it on other people. You convince yourself that that your failure is somebody else's fault, but actually, then you're stuck uh, regretting somebody else's behavior. It's not much better. Or, like I said, you, you could use it to to motivate yourself to do better. That's not freedom from regret either. It's just trying not to feel more. So I guess we actually have a lot of ways to deal with regret, or at least to cope with it. But I think the only way to really stop pining and start rejoicing is that we have to be convinced that what is truly is the best thing. That it's better than what might have been. Well, that's a tough sell. I'm painted in a corner because uh, now I got to convince you that all your disappointments, uh, your embarrassments, uh, your tragedies—that uh, those are actually perfect. I um, can't do that. It's not even possible. I mean, for one thing, most of our stories haven't haven't ended yet, and this little vignette, Paul sees the outcome, the regret, and the outcome in one frame. But most of our stories are are they're still in progress, and it just it would just be foolish to try to map like a movie. All of your bad things that happen into into good would be wishful thinking. And I don't know your stories. I've heard and I know too many unbearable ones. It would be presumption. Um... So instead, I'll ask a question. Uh, Here's the question Who is responsible for the failures and blunders in your life? Who is responsible for your failures and blunders? there's only three answers you somebody else or you know (laughs) friends the, the good news of the gospel is that you are not responsible for your failures and blunders in the book in chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus wasn't just standing in front of the bullet paying your penalty. He took responsibility for all of you. Your failures, Blunders included. He became guilty of your sin. So, fine, you say, uh, I'm off the hook. God won't judge me for that. But I judge me. Of course, I dwell on the consequences of that decision. Of course it would be better for that mistake to never have happened, for that bridge to never have been burned, for my son to still be alive. Of the consequences I care about, i got only one person to blame, and that's me. No. Romans 8, 33, 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You might believe that you're holding yourself in contempt, that you're holding others to the flame. But Jesus has taken your weakness, He's taken theirs, He's taken your mishaps, your blemishes. It's him you judge. Looking again at uh, verse 10 here in uh, chapter 7. When we, um, when we hold on to what, what might have been, we're insisting on life on our terms. And as good and right as good and right as those terms might be, those terms that we thought were holy, were sanctioned, that is the worldly grief that leads to death. That insisting. But relinquishing that hold in faith of what God might create instead, that is called repentance. And it actually feels like death because it's loosening your grasp on our preferred life. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. Okay, godly grief produces Repentance that leads to, leads to salvation without regret. Okay. Salvation without regret, that's life. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to life, whereas worldly grief produces death. And repentance is death. For godly grief produces a death that leads to life. There's a worldly grief just produces death. Luke nine twenty four. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So look how the Corinthians responded to this, this godly grief in verses, verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Their, their repentance was active, okay? It was, it was compelling them, spurring them to change. But each of those has kind of this counterfeit that comes with uh, worldly grief, right? Our earnestness with uh, with godly grief is like it's uh, just conforming to expectation. Eagerness to clear yourself is like defensiveness. Indignation that's uh, just taking offense how dare you fear or anxiety longing or pining away zeal or overcompensating punishment or self-flagellation so there's like a counterfeit version of these the heart the heart follows still in, in 11 here. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So Paul maybe didn't even realize when he wrote what he wrote, when he wrote that letter, that that letter was not for the dude. It wasn't for the dude, is the guy who did the wrong, right? The guy, whoever it is. Thankfully, we don't have his name. <laughs> it's not for the guy who was offended, who, who suffered the wrong, himself, Paul. I didn't write, it ended up, I wasn't writing that for him. I wasn't writing it for me. It turned out I was writing it for you that your hearts that your that your zeal for me that your relationship with me that your affection for me would would be revealed exposed this is this is important that in other words this rebuke or maybe more accurately should say, this accusation that they could have received proved untrue. At, he says at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. You've proved yourself innocent. How do you be told that you're wrong, that you've sinned, and prove yourself innocent? It's like, it's like the, the Corinthians heard this rebuke and they just woke up to their true affection for Paul. They discovered that they weren't behaving like themselves. This is, this is like the prodigal son. He spent, he's gone off with his father's money, spent it all, All the prostitutes are gone, all the lavish living is gone, and he's feeding pigs and eating with them. He finds himself with these pigs, and he doesn't waste anguish on decisions made, but wakes up and he looks around and he just says, What am I doing here? My father loves me. I'm just going to go back. Even the, even the dregs of my father's love are better than this. That's the nature of repentance. Awakening to the creation of God. This godly grief cannot be strived after. But it's given freely and abundantly. Let us not resist it when it falls lightly on us. If you have ears to hear today, do not languish languish long in the pig trough. You are the beloved child of God. Let's pray. a father uh, come near to us um, in our regrets especially those ones that are insidious and alluring that plague us that eat us from the inside we find it scandalous when you seem cavalier with our hopes and dreams and we find it difficult to forgive you loosen our grip on these treasures expose them for what they are which is just it's just not you open our hearts to the hope of resurrection it's a vital present hope send your spirit amen